2: From Variety, celebrating more than 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast.
3: But I felt like having a part of that control could contribute to, you know, telling the story in a thoughtful way. And luckily, everyone on the entire team, we all felt the, the same and how we wanted to bring sensitivity to this and, and also kind of show the story from an unbiased approach.
2: Elle Fanning wasn't so sure at first whether she wanted to star in The Girl from Plainville, given the scandalous nature of how the case at the center of the series was portrayed by the press. But then she dove in deeper. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to The Girl from Plainville and The Great Star and executive producer Elle Fanning about the two very different Hulu shows. After that, we chat with Pachinko creator and showrunner Sue Hugh about her remarkable Apple TV Plus show. It's all next on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Elle Fanning has grown up on screen, starring in dozens of movies since her film debut two decades ago. Starting in 2020, she's gained acclaim as Empress Catherine II in the Hulu comedy The Great, But two weeks after wrapping production on season three, she dove into a much more serious project, Hulu's The Girl from Plainville, playing another real person, Michelle Carter, the teen who was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for encouraging her boyfriend, Conrad Roy III, to end his life.
0: Michelle, what is it? Conrad's dead. (laughs) Who's
1: Conrad? Leading up to his suicide, there are text exchanges between the two of them. Thousands of them. What motive could she possibly have for
4: telling him to kill himself? We don't get it. This is
3: our love story.
2: Though The Great was nominated for two Emmys, one writing and one directing in 2020, Fanning has yet to be recognized for her role of Catherine the Great. Her co-star, Nicholas Holt, has also been looked over in past years. But Fanning is Hulu's shining star this year, with both The Great and The Girl from Plainville in the Emmy conversation. Not only does she lead the comedy and the dark drama, she also serves as an executive producer on both. Friday's Emily Longaretta and I sat down with El Fanning to talk about both projects, but particularly what went into playing Michelle Carter on The Girl from Plainville. We began by noting how she is indeed Hulu's MVP of the year.
3: Yeah, Hulu all the way. Like, you know, it's so funny because someone was talking the other day, like one of my friends saying, because Hulu, the Instagram Hulu, you know, comments on my, like, all my Instagram photos all the time, and it's like always a boost from Hulu. They're like, "Yes, Queen, oh, you're doing great." I'm like, "Thanks, Hulu." It's like, I'm like, whoever's running that, and like they really they're giving me a boost in the morning. Wow. I know when I check my comments, so.
2: I like Hulu is like self affirmation totally. for, for El That's yes. great.
4: <laughs> yeah, everyone needs a little of that in their life. I know. Got everyone
3: have those it's accounts. So funny.
2: <laughs> They're not like, get back to work. Like, <laughs> no, seriously, yeah, exactly. we're season three of The Great. Hell, <laughs> exactly. stop posting.
3: Well, they're kind of, yeah. Well, I mean, we're about to go shoot the third season in like a matter of weeks. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back to London soon. So, wow. Yeah.
2: That's exciting. It is
3: exciting. It's like Tony, also, Tony McNamara, who is our showrunner and he writes The Great he kind of writes as he goes along. So he has like kind of an overview of what he wants the whole season to look like, but we only, I've only read the first script of season three and I'm sure it will, will change, but it's, he's ever evolving. So you never really know what to expect with Tony. We're always on our toes and we have like an initial table read before each block. And sometimes none of us will have read like any of the last episodes, like at the table read, we find out, you know, What happens and like, oh my god! He keeps he's very secretive, Tony.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Are you are you fine with that, or or are you dying to to learn more and what's in his head and where things are going with Catherine?
3: You know, I think like the audience member in me is dying to know what's next. Um, But then I kind of works. I think our show keeps us on our toes in that way, and he's also kind of looking at the dynamics that we have with each other and. Watching us act, he kind of can change things and veer in different directions and push us more. So I kind of like the surprise element of it because our show actually, weirdly, that is kind of spontaneous, but the words on the page, like we cannot veer away. We do not ad lib. Everything is extremely, not rigid, but kind of, you know, we have to stay on book. And then the physicality or our emotion in the scene can kind of be that's where we get the freedom, but the, the words and the memorization, it it feels like a test every day, <laughs> like learning the lines. It's a specific rhythm and, you know, you'll miss a the and you're like, oh no, like I gotta go again. So yeah, it's a real... Specific challenge.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a rhythm to, to the language, totally. right? And And I'm sure also just some of the absurdity, those moments probably trip you up sometimes too.
3: They do. Well, yeah, also you can't stop laughing, like especially with scenes with Nick and I, he's so funny. Like, yeah. it's like you see, you know, a lip quiver. It's like, oh God, I'm gonna go. And like we bust <laughs> up and like ruin takes a lot. But that is the fun of our set for sure. Yeah, I think and also like, again, like the rhythm of comedy was something I had to to learn because I definitely have done more dramatic roles. I you know, whatever that means. But this is, you know, these scripts, you read it and you're like, oh yeah, that's a joke. Like that's a punchline. I have to hit that. And so it really the first season I was really learning. And I think the second season, all of us kind of realized what the tone was. And so we came back kind of raring to go. And especially me, I felt Kind of like the most uninhibited I'd ever felt, and the least embarrassed, and kind of willing to try and willing to really expose myself, especially in like the comedy arena. I was not afraid to to push it, so I learned a lot.
4: How does it? I know you talk. You talked a little about this before. How does it? Happen that you come back and you say, you know what, now I'm going to dive into this really dark and deep story that is the opposite of light and funny. And you didn't have much time in between, right? You dove right in pretty much.
3: That is true. Yes. So from The Great Season 2, I only had two weeks in between to go from The Great to The Girl from Plainville. So it was a complete 180 (laughs) for sure. And I had been living in, you know, the great world for a a while then, because it was the first season and the second kind of happened pretty quickly after that. So, you know, The Girl from Plainville was kind of, was a project that I knew was kind of looming. Like I, especially during filming The Great, I knew that it was a project that I had signed on to do, but it's almost one of those things that you're like, oh gosh, it's that daunting thing in the back of your head that you're like nervous about and actually don't quite know what you're going to do with the character yet. And just that thing that I honestly during the grade I was really suppressing even thinking about Michelle. I mean, you don't have much time to think about anything else when, when you're doing the great except for for what you're doing. But um, yeah, I it was like those two weeks. I was like, gosh, I have to rest, but then I also have to try to figure out who Michelle Carter is because you know I didn't speak to her. I knew basically what everyone else knew about her from the media and kind of the headline stories, and obviously the Esquire article. That the show is based on that Jesse Barron wrote and Aaron Lee Carr's HBO documentary. I had watched those and, you know, those were kind of the public knew that a bit. But we had to dive in more. I mean, we have to do a complete show and try to figure out this character who... There's not a lot, there's not a lot on her. There's a lot of photographs and I mean, the YouTube, there are YouTube videos in court of, of her, you know, just sitting, but she never testifies or never speaks. So it's really from the ground up that you have to begin.
2: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, and and people pretty much know the salacious por- portions of the story. They don't really know, they, they obviously haven't dived into the specifics of th- these people and and who they were and Michelle especially mm-hmm. a lot of sort of just surface understandings of of who she was versus diving deeper into issues of mental health and mm-hmm. and, and some of the things that Plainville dives into. Yeah. And uh, I know you had a lot of conversations with, with Liz Hannah and, and, and the folks there and sort of figuring out how to tackle that and, and how you were going to tackle Michelle.
3: Yeah, because I was even tentative to honestly sign on to the project, you know, when this came to me, just because I think this is a story that can really easily be sensationalized and romanticized just for to do a TV show and you know, we want people to watch it. And that is a, I was like, gosh, that is not the story that I want to tell, especially knowing that these families are alive and a young man's life was lost. And I really talked to everyone involved a lot of times before kind of saying yes. And ultimately I also was able to be a producer on the show, which of course adds more of a responsibility, but I felt like having a part of that control could contribute to, um, you know telling this story in a thoughtful way and luckily everyone on the entire team we all felt the same and how we wanted to bring sensitivity to this and and also kind of show the story from an unbiased approach I think you know like you said the media really you know they they only shared a bit is very one-dimensional on both sides I mean Michelle was like this black they you know portrayed her as his black widow manipulator. And then, you know, Conrad was her victim and he very much was a victim, but also at the same time, he was portrayed really one dimensionally. All we knew about him was that he, you know, committed suicide and we didn't know much about his backstory. So I think all of us wanted to dive into that and the world of technology, which I think we're all really trying to navigate. And back when the court case was happening, I mean, I didn't follow it intensely. I mean, I think I was 19. I just graduated high school myself. But just hearing about these young people that are honestly kind of the first generation of seeing what the results of growing up with technology can do and actually the horror side of that. They're the first generation of this. So I think it's so intriguing and honestly really scary. But playing with that false intimacy. And, you know, you can be whoever you want to be over the phone. You can interpret emotions. You can say anything. You can create a whole other persona, which I think Michelle definitely did at times. You know, she lived in fantasy, which is something I can partly relate to as being an actor. I live in fantasy all the time. So I love the (laughs) fantasy elements of the show. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I mean, a lot of it is fantasy elements Mm -hmm. because and I think something that they do so well that you guys have created so well is making these text messages come to life Mm -hmm. because a lot of people who've seen the documentary or have watched you know the news stories can talk about how they've read the read some of the messages or you see them on the screen Mm -hmm. written. But having seeing you guys act them out together, you and Colton Colton Ryan who is incredible in this role the seeing you guys kind of act those out together in and almost, almost in like a theatrical way is
3: so fascinating. So that must have been something that was almost like fun for you to do in some scenes. Yeah, it was a different, I'd never done that before on screen. I mean, part of it too, I was like, how are we going to show the texting? Because texting is not cinematic. Texting is not something that I want to watch, you know, really, I mean. Something that we do all the time, every day. It's almost weirdly like watching people in masks in TV shows. I'm like, I don't want to see that. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like the same with being on the phone. I'm like, "We, we know what that is. So, but obviously this is, you know, deemed the texting suicide case. I mean, so it's, you can't have this without the texts. And I think using the device of bringing these texts to life to show their, the progression of their relationship, because... One of the most fascinating things is that they only met a handful of times and we did have access to read all of their text messages between each other, which is really haunting, but also quite like a normal teenage relationship, whatever, normal, but there's silliness, there's, you know, secrecy, telling their deepest, darkest secrets. Like there's a real intimacy in these messages because that was their entire relationship. So that helped so much and I think... You know, when Colton and I would do those scenes together, it, you know, normally when you have an acting partner, you're trying to always, you know, listen to what they're saying and pick up on their emotions in their eyes. And, you know, that's being connected. But these scenes were completely the opposite. Like they were about being completely disconnected and honestly interpreting our words or emotions in a different way or really not seeing each other. So there was kind of rules in place when we had those fantasies, like we couldn't touch, we had, you know, we would a lot of the time be playing opposite emotions and more disconnected, which was, I think it was a challenge, but it was interesting, you know? Yeah. He's so incredible. Like you said, he's so great. So we had a good time. As much of a good time as it's, it was intense every day on set, but um, yeah, we still we were close. I guess supporting each other. Yeah,
4: he was telling me that he was singing show tunes in between, and was yeah. like, "I was keeping it light," and everyone was like, "We're trying to we're trying to <laughs> film know. this really
3: emotional scene, like maybe." I know he's such a well. He's a big you know musical theater yeah. guy. I mean, and he got to show his pipes. We had a musical moment. <laughs> so I know we can't get Colton Ryan without getting him to sing.
2: Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> So uh, how much uh, Glee did you watch uh, growing up versus now? What, what kind of Glee fan were you?
3: I was not a hardcore Glee fan growing. I didn't I'd definitely seen episodes, but I I wasn't you know I didn't watch religiously like a lot of my friends did. So I had to revisit that. I watched. I've seen Fault in Our Stars before, but I watched it again before this and watched a lot of episodes of Glee. And that was honestly what kind of I don't know the light bulb went off when I her fascination I think with pop culture and with celebrity and this these this YA world of, you know, we're I can I think we all, I don't know, as a teenager, you are trying to create your own narrative. Like you're trying to figure out who you are and like with me, like I loved Greece growing up, like was obsessed with Greece. And I totally tried to like create that. Like the guy I dated in high school, I was like, I want the bad guy. I want to be the sandy. Like that's a little bit, but it's yeah. like were you I, sandy? Yeah, I was yeah. you know, I totally was. And then, you know, she has a little edge at the end. Like I was like, but there's there's something there that's like I can under I think we can, you know, a sliver of that understand to I don't know, to relating to these stories and trying to be the star in your own version of that in your head. And I think, you know, obviously Michelle or our Michelle that we created, you know, took that to another level, almost became an obsessive level, but also I can't help, but feel kind of, it's like my kind of heart breaks for her because it's like the loneliness that she had. And especially I remember filming the court scenes of when her so-called, she thinks are her friends are like testifying against her and saying that, you know, we'd never wanted to hang out with her. And like that, Oh man, that's like, you know, just the worst yeah. possible thing, especially at that age, you know, and what she must feel. So it's all, yeah, the the glee. I mean, I watched the Make You Feel My Love, Leah Michelle, her singing that so many times. I had like I would record myself in my apartment doing every mannerisms like when she closes her eyes on the certain word and when she tears up on that line. And like when she puts her hand to her chest, like I wanted it to be exact because that was when I read the pilot, it was a bit ago. And like, I was like that scene, I was like, you know, sometimes you just know as an actor, like that's the scene, like that's the scene. Like I'm either going to be able to do it or not. Like (laughs) Yeah. it's just, you know, it was like, okay, I had to do my homework. So I watched that so many times, but I think it really just, sums up the show in a lot of ways you know of her because a lot of people are like whoa like that's creepy tinge of like creepiness to it but also real sadness because watching someone in real time she can't grieve herself like she can't feel those emotions herself so she has to watch someone else to emulate grief like she's pretending to
2: grieve for herself like right right yeah Yeah. Yeah. It's really
3: layers of
4: like meta. I know. It's so intense. It is. Yeah. It's very.
2: But it does remind you again that's, you know, when when you're a teenager, when you're that age, that's Mm -hmm. exactly what you're doing. Like, Mm -hmm. how am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to grieve? Like, a lot of copying. TV showed me how I'm supposed to. So I guess this is what I need to do. Completely. Yeah. You keep mentioning sort of your version of Michelle. Yeah. You know, talk a little bit about that and and sort of, you know, what your takeaway was. Sort of your feeling is now. What's what's what you know? Who is Michelle in your mind versus both your Michelle, but also the real Michelle?
3: Yeah, I mean that's something. I mean we talked about a lot because obviously Patrick McManus and Liz Hanna were our showrunners, and they just so delicately, I think, find every character is their journey so specific and it's so thought out. And I think you could feel, you know, they definitely had a lot of weight on their shoulders to try to get this as accurate and, and told in a responsible way, you know, I think, you know, you can't really, I can't, it's like cliche, it's like to say, to judge a character, I can't judge a character that I'm playing, you know, she made these choices. And so it's my job to try to understand how she did the things she ultimately did. And I don't have to agree with what she did. You know, she said some really horrible, horrible things, but I have to try to wrap my head around how she got there and can't judge her for that. And, you know, it's something that yeah, we talked about it a lot. I was nervous. I think I was nervous to, I'm trying she's very, like the teenage girl of her is very heightened. So there's high, the way that's written too is like high drama. Like she, I was worried. I'm like, are people going to think that I'm just overacting? There was a part of me that was like, gosh, I'm like, this scene is so dramatic. And I think that that was the fun of calibrating it. And I would turn to them and be like, to Liz and Patrick, be like, is this okay? Like, am I, is this too much? Like, and I think also in the editing room, I got to be there, which was, I love yeah, that so Being side. a I was producer, like, has I know perfect, so. I loved being in the editing room because there's so many different choices that you could make. I mean, with everyone, but kind of calibrating it to show that you know, I think the audience really we're not answering many questions, I think we're putting it all out on the table, and we're also not trying to overturn a verdict. I mean, she was, she went to jail for involuntary manslaughter and that is what happened and uh, I think especially like with the last episode episode 8 it was a while where we were like how are we going to end this because it's not neatly tied up we're not trying to tell a new side it's this is ultimately what happened but I do think we kind of call it the eternal sunshine <laughs> like fantasy sequence of when you kind of go inside Michelle's mm-hmm. mind and basically like inner the limbo that she's living in that for me i think it was a good way to show that ultimately she has to accept the the guilt that she's guilty of what she's done and and kind of face what she did head on and so gosh yeah i don't it's hard to know you know what she, what she what she thinks or but obviously you know Conrad's life, he's, he's gone. And I think Lynn too is really out there, really advocating for her son. And I think this show is also like, it's a real cautionary tale of if you see signs or, you know, you have to, you have to get help uh, and, and really not do (laughs) what she did.
4: Yeah. I'm curious about Uh, the producer side of you going forward. Is that
3: something now you're like, oh, I got a taste of it. I just want to do more. Yeah, I do love it. I really do. I think also like growing up because I, you know as a young actor or whatever but when you're on sets from such a young age you start to feel or at least i did like start to feel like what is everyone else doing like how do how does this work like what are the cogs in the wheel like i want to i want to be a part of that i want to i want more so there is a part of me that's happy that i get to you know build things kind of from more of the beginning and watch everything get put together and you know the first season of the great was really when i got to be a producer and you know, we pitched that out, and I got to see that side and be in rooms that I normally wouldn't be in, and my confidence has grown a lot. I think all the show owners would say now that I'm very opinionated, <laughs> like. But I think you know, I've just I've learned to to not be as as scared and be a bit more outspoken about stuff, and yeah, hope to direct one day. We don't. I'm sure a lot of people say that. We'll see oh, <laughs> one day.
2: How yeah. about uh? episode of The Great.
3: I know, you know, I've thought about that, but I think it would have to be an episode that Catherine's not in. Like, I don't know if I could direct that Yourself. show and be, yeah. You would
2: do that classic thing where you're like behind the camera, then you race in front, I you're know. in costume, and then go behind I again. I know,
3: I watched, because I did, I was in Live By Night with Ben Affleck, and he was in it, and he was directing, and so I kind of, I saw that, and he would, you know, he would have to like cut himself, like, it's like, sustain, he'd be like, and cut, and I'm like, in a scene. <laughs> it's, like, this is you have to put on so many hats. Yeah, who knows? <laughs>
2: so uh, on The Great, I don't know how much you can sort of uh, hint at season three, but obviously things end, uh, you know, as as we, uh, yeah. we always... We call it like the
3: graduate ending of season two. <laughs> like that's what Tony kept saying, because they're both like, what do we do now, right. you know?
2: <laughs> right, right. So, so things are obviously precarious between those two, but uh, moving on, uh, what... Uh... What what do you think we should expect whenever we get back to season three? Which,
3: yeah, hopefully soon. I think I think they. You know, we've never truly seen these two living as like a married couple. They've always had a lot of complications. Catherine has mostly also been really suppressing her feelings and not just kind of saying it like it is. Which is she's in love with the guy, you know. Um, And now they have this child together, and I think you know, they're going to try out marriage for a bit and see, um, see how that goes for them. All while, you know, Catherine's still trying to figure out if she is a capable ruler. I think like what I love about her so much is that she, you know, she has a giant ego, which is really fun to play. You know, she, she kind of loves hearing herself talk and making these rousing speeches with a lot of ideas that are fantastic ideas and very progressive ideas, which, you know, the the real Catherine the Great, um, she she did. But also, you know, a country's not going to change overnight. And I think Catherine, she wants she wants to see results. And, you know, my it's not always like that. So I'm also excited. Nick and I would talk about this, too. Like, I think Catherine is a lot like Peter. And I think that's why she kind of resents him, because he's the only person who truly kind of sees her and knows the shoes that she's in and the pressures that she's under. And I know there would be times where Nick's like, oh, you're kind of like, you're acting like me a little bit. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of true. I don't know. She has a bit, she can be a tyrant at times. (laughs) She, you know, she, she's now at the end of the season too. Yeah. She's, she's killed a man. So, you know, she's so against bloodshed, but she had to kill someone. Yeah.
2: It happens. Yeah, right? it happens. Huzzah.
3: <laughs> yeah, huzzah. <laughs>
2: That's right. So we have uh, our rapid fire six questions okay. for you oh now. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we'll learn oh, a little no. bit more about uh, L. Okay. Uh, well, first off, this is the, the, the question that we may have already asked you, but mm-hmm. the question that people ask you the most.
3: Oh, the question that people ask me the most. That's interesting. You guys, I don't think you have asked me. It always, it's normally... Used to be like, "Are you Dakota Fanning?" <laughs> yeah, that's what it used that to all been, the time. That would have been funny
2: if that was our first question. I know, mean, and you.
3: honestly, it sometimes still is. Like I've gotten that, like you know, on the streets, like fans on the street, like, "Oh, are you Dakota Fanning?" No, I'm her sister. Uh, so, close, close, yes, close. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, one degree of separation. <laughs> yeah, that
2: was that's that's the one. <laughs> I like it. The TV show in history that you wish you were a part of.
3: Ooh, that's really good. TV show in history. Mm.
2: God, that's good.
3: What have I been? What do I
2: love? Yeah, if you could go back in time and I join know. the cast of some great show. Well, I mean, great Friends show. is kind
3: of fun, right? I always related to Phoebe. I would be a Phoebe for sure if I was in Friends. Well,
2: if they do the remake. I know.
3: I also watched Girls recently and I had never seen it. And I think I'm like the perfect age to watch it because they're in the season one. They're I just turned 24 and they're like, Twenty three, starting yeah. out. Yeah, I loved it. I like, yes, but I would want to be Adam Driver. So <laughs> <good>. <laughs> yeah, if I could play him in that show, he's wild. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah, in I mean, he is, but I'm like, he's
2: so good in that show. That so would, good. by the way, like a gender swapped girl really be
3: interesting. Oh, so good. Right? Yeah, <laughs> And I'm the yeah. crazy boyfriend. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> yeah. All right. I like it. I like it. it- what would people be surprised uh, that you watch? Speaking of TV, like your guilty pleasure.
3: Ooh. Um, I still watch American Idol. <laughs> wow. I'm like, Isn't You're the one? I know. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm the one. <laughs> I do, I know. I still am like holding on. They had Disney week last week. So. <laughs> yeah.
2: Love the synergy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well,
3: that's good. That's a surprise. <laughs>
4: I would
2: I, I I would ask if he had a favorite this season, but I don't know who any of the contestants are. No, you could
3: are. make up a name. I know. You no yeah, idea. exactly. There's a lot of good ones. Christian's really good. You know,
2: yeah. <laughs> Christian's great. Yeah, great. love Christian. Big fan. All right, we'll go with Christian. <laughs> I
3: just remember like calling in, like when I was young. Yeah. Like I would, I totally called Same. in, be like over and over and over again.
2: Do you have a favorite idol of, of of all time?
3: A favorite? Oh, I I love Fantasia. Fantasia. Yeah. I would. I remember really calling in for her yeah. a lot. That's like a memory. I don't know. Yeah. Writing them down, like what's the number? What's the number? You know. <laughs> like, so different. Yeah.
2: That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, so what hobby would you be doing if uh you didn't have your day job? What's what's oh. what's the hobby that uh, you wish you had more time to pursue?
1: Mm.
3: A hobby. That's interesting. I love like I've always loved miniatures. So like if I could have like Tony Collette's job in Hereditary, like making like a dollhouse, I would. Yeah. Do wow. Very obscure, but I've always like I don't I remember like my first like internet memory is going on like eBay sites or like they used to have like, I don't even think they have these sites anymore, but it was like miniatures.com and like you would see like tiny little wonder bread, like, like perfect. You're just like, Oh my God, this looks so realistic. I love it. So yeah, I had a lot of dollhouses growing up. So Super weird, but yeah. I wish I had more time for my miniatures. <laughs> yeah,
2: got to bring that back. It's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> you see that every once in a while. Yeah. I, I know there's some- But it
3: is true, right? Like Tony, Cl- she's like a, yeah. she makes like, she's like a, I guess she's an artist in making like, yeah. Right. Hopefully a little less- like, Haunted. yeah <laughs> like i don't want to crawl on the walls but
2: <laughs> but the happy part of yeah, yeah. Exactly.
3: the wonder bread yeah the wonder
2: bread so what's the food you can cook what's your do you have Ooh. a dish that's like your signature dish
3: i can i love to cook so i make a great eggplant parm like a really good eggplant parm a lot of italian like i've over the quarantine i made like you know, hand rolled pasta and like, I didn't even have a pasta maker. So I was like, all right, let's just like YouTube. Let's go like you and me and like rolling out. I mean, you have to like use your muscles to get it really thin and make good like pasta sauce. I can do that well. I also made eclairs. Mm. Yeah. That was with the shoe pastry. And yeah, so I love, I do like to cook. My sister's more of the baker though, because she's super precise. Like, My baking goods always turn out terribly because I'm like the crazy chef, you know, like a little dash of this. Like you can't do that with baking. So, yeah, I don't call cake. Like I'm not good at cakes. But yeah.
2: Yeah. That's great. Um, That's
3: perfect because you can do dinner. She can do dessert. And that's what we do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We make Christmas Eve dinner. So,
2: well, you know, if this acting thing doesn't work out, (laughs) the two of you could just sort of get into business.
3: Cooking, baking show. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And finally, this is always a dangerous question to ask because you're so busy working. I don't know how much time you actually have to watch TV yeah. on the air right now, yeah. but if there's something that you watched this year that you're rooting for in Emmy season that uh, really stuck with you or, or clicked with you.
3: I know. I mean, the funny thing is, is I watch a lot of TV and then these things come to me and I'm like, I like blank. I'm like, oh no. God, what have, what do I watch? What have I seen? I mean, the dropout is Liz Hannah, so... You know, she's in the family. That's by the way, that you counts. Know? Drop it's totally out. Fine. that's fantastic. You know, that uh, that really counts. Like another blonde, or like big blue eyes. Like <laughs> you yeah. know, she could be a Fanning for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Elizabeth Sorry, yeah. Holmes could be a Fanning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we leave it right there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there I love go. it. Well, L, congratulations Thank on you. being Hulu's MVP. Thank I, do, I think you. they should give you a trophy or or something. So they're
3: giving me comments, you know? I got <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Just Words give of me affirmation.
2: Self, Self-affirmation. Yeah, that's, yes. that's great. You go, girl. Yes, yeah, yes queen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's the girl from Plainville and the great star Elle Fanny. Both shows are now streaming on Hulu. After the break, Pachinko showrunner Sue Hugh from Los Angeles, this is the Award Circuit Podcast.
1: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DW, avoid for prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18. Plus. It's the variety award circuit podcast. I'm Michael
2: Schneider. Apple TV Plus's epic drama Pachinko examines the history of ethnic Korean inhabitants of Japan through the lens of Sunja, a fish merchant born in Korea during Japanese colonial rule. She's forced to immigrate to Japan after becoming pregnant out of wedlock.
1: I want to
2: The original novel by Min Jin Lee traces Sunjo's life chronologically, split into three linear parts. But in adapting that story to television, showrunner and executive producer Su Hugh chose to blow up that structure and instead follow two different timelines. One in the 1920s when Sunja is a young woman played by Min-Ha Kim, and one set in 1989 when Sunja is an elderly woman played by Ye Jong yoon Every episode crisscrosses between these time periods, mostly keeping to the text of the original novel while telling the story in a completely different way. I recently spoke with Sue Hugh about the origins of the series, the difficulty of shooting the show, especially during the pandemic, and whether it will eventually be more widely seen in Japan. I began by asking her how gratifying the reaction to Pachinko has been for her.
0: I had no idea how the show was going to do, not just critically, but this show just feels like such a weird anomaly and a miracle in every way that I really, really had no idea. But in the past few months since the show has been released, I've had so many people come up to me and say, oh, this show reminded me of my grandmother, or this show reminded me of you know my grandfather, or this relative that I never quite knew, but I always heard her story. This really broke open sort of the biography from people, if that makes sense. People would just get really emotional and sincere, and that that was when I knew there's something, the show is tapping into something. The thing that made me respond to the to the story it's being communicated to everyone else which is that's gratifying
2: yeah and i think something also that i've heard from a lot of people is sort of just finally understanding and and being educated about the 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 sort of the plight of korean immigrants to japan especially in the yeah. early part of the 20th century and the discrimination and and the struggles that they faced you know both through the occupation in korea but then also when immigrating to Japan. And a lot of that is sort of, I think, unfamiliar to, to, to most people, including people from Japan. A, f- a friend of mine who grew up in Japan was telling me that she watched Pachinko and she was like, I really had no idea. I had no idea. And that must also be stunning to hear that from people who even grew up there and didn't understand sort of the, the, the situation.
0: Yeah, we live in very strange times. And I what I mean by that is the past is being buried. And it feels like Pachinko is a fiction show. It is not a documentary. And I think it's important to say like I never want to ever people think this is true life.
2: Yeah. But
0: if this show can help just a little bit excavate stories, the true history and as your friend said, be aware of one's past, I think then I would feel like we did some good in this world. I knew the very bare bones of the Zainichi experience, but digging into the research of this show, my mind was, I was blown away by how big the story was and how utterly erased it's become.
2: Yeah, and, and so obviously, like you said, it's not a documentary, but you know, nonetheless, I know you talked to a lot of people and and did a lot of research, like you said, to at least get a better understanding and really reflect, you know, some of the the truth of, of what happened. And so, you know, talk a little bit more about how important that was for you and, and what you hope people will take away and maybe, you know, go and and you know, do do their own research or or sort of, you know, educate themselves a little bit more.
0: I mean, the research component of the show took about a a year, roughly a year, and one of the reasons why was because the show spans about over 80 years, and once you decide to cross-cut time periods, I didn't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'll learn about that season two. Because all the characters have lived through all 80 years, I had to really break down the entire history from the get-go, from season one, and, you know, not only just diving into what happened in colonial years? if I had to figure out what happened in world war two, because when we meet Sinja in our so-called present day, the older Sinja, she's lived through world war II, She's lived through the Korean war. She's lived through. And you're just like, ah, that character won't ever feel real. If I don't know her entire biography. And so talking to just consultants and historians who are experts, not just on like specific parts of the Zainichi history, but food historians, costume historians, uh, we had historians on everything from like media historians. Like what were people watching in the 1980s? And first of all, I love that there's someone who like specializes like specifically in 1980s Japanese television. And you're like, that is your job. That's amazing. Um, but that was just really important, helping to flesh out the real world of the show. Cause I feel like for me, my bullshit radar goes off when I'm like, I don't quite buy it. If you're doing a period show, I really want to be immersed in it and fall into it and, make it as visceral as possible so really those details help
2: yeah especially because there are obviously a lot of people w- lived through the 80s both in yeah. japan and also i mean they they remember the the death of hirohito back back yeah. in the day and you know the the one-sided reaction there so you're also dealing with an audience that sort of they know some things they don't know other things and so yeah but yeah the ambition of pachinko i think is fascinating to me because there's a lot to stuff into this when you talk about jumping from the different eras and playing with different versions of these characters, both in their youth and also older. Um, How do you even start? to sort of craft something like this. What was the process like in the beginning to kind of map out, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to jump from different eras. This is how we're going to take this this original book and turn it into a series. That seems daunting to me.
0: You know, it is, it's like that, it's the problem with the white page, the blank white page, right? When you Mm -hmm. start and you just need to type in something so you don't have blankness staring at you. I always start off by knowing what I don't want to do or what what I don't want the show to be. Sometimes that's much more helpful to me than determining what a show is from the from the beginning if that makes sense. So I knew at the beginning that I did not want to do Masterpiece Theater. And what I mean by that is I didn't want the language of this show to feel like you're watching a book come to life. And by the way, I love Masterpiece Theater, I love Jane Austen, I love all those adaptations. but especially because this was a history, as you said, that some people didn't know, it had to feel lived in. So that was the one thing. like This show has to feel not, period, if that makes sense. We had to just really erase all those boundaries. Two, I knew that if I told this story chronological, it wouldn't, sort of the thesis statements that I wanted to explore until much later in the season, and a series, meaning to me, the big, big questions don't even get posed until season four about what does generational trauma mean? How does one generation affect the other? What does the burdens of our forefathers put upon us or their sacrifices? If I told her chronologically that none of those questions would even be scratched in the first season, right? Yeah. Um, Cause you're really watching a coming of age story the first season. And in this climate of TV where we have so much, so much great television and too much out there, you have to just go for broke right away and really start with what do I wanna say in this show? and for me and in my interest it was the cross-cutting of time periods.
2: Yeah, and in some ways you're right in that that there's the the easier entry point in having sort of a you know modern day being the late 80s but still yeah. sort of modern modern day to some degree is is such a easier entry point especially for young people tuning in to to watch and slowly start to think about the 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 generational issues. That, you know, even your character isn't thinking about at first, uh, you know, it's it's he's he's just traveling to make a deal and, and try to, you know, prove his lot in life, not even thinking about what it all means for, from a larger perspective. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so there's all of that. And then there's also just how do you tell the story? And this is where talking about, you know, being multilingual and deciding how to figure out the color coding the, uh, the, the, the closed captioning to denote different languages and and sort of you know, how was that going to be shown on screen? What were some of those conversations like in, in just figuring out logistically how this was gonna work?
0: Well, I have to give Apple a lot of credit from the very beginning. They didn't bat an eye when it was when we said this show has to be told in the native languages that characters spoken. Um, and that shows you really how far we've come, right? Like that conversation five years ago, showed up in all in English. Can't imagine anyone who would have made this show in Korean and Japanese. But once you get to the Korean and Japanese and you're watching the characters speak, we knew we had to color code. I didn't quite know what the colors was gonna be, but in the script, it's written out when they switch languages, even within sentences. So it'll be like Salman says, these words in Japanese, these words in Korean, these words in Japanese. So just looking at the scripts, we color coded them, um, so that the actors can read it really easily. And it just felt like this very intuitive, easy way to get that.
2: No. And I think you, you pick it up really relatively fast. I think you're right. Uh, you know, even 10 years ago there, there still was a barrier to entry for closed captioning and, and for subtitles, but we're really living in an age now where people are, are embracing them and, uh, it's, it's a it's a good time finally to to be able to to tell these stories so yeah. so there's that and then there's also you know going back to sort of the the jumps you know there there is sort of a nice dance that uh, you start to really get into the groove like as as you're watching episode two episode three, episode four where you really start to you feel the rhythm of when the show jumps back in time to the 30s and then to the 80s and a lot of that's in editing I know but you know sort of, what were your ideas and you know how often you were going to make those jumps and, and how those would look and, and how in, in after a while it becomes so organic, you just sort of, you know, you're, it feels natural.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. In the script, you know, there's a lot of cross-cutting in the script as a template. But then once you get to the editing room, you throw it all out. And really the mandate sort of what dictated a cut was when do we feel something? If you're going from one time period to another and it just feels academic, right? Like you, match cuts, for example. Match cuts are really satisfying. The first time or second time you do it in an episode, they get they start to lose its power. So constantly asking ourselves, like, when are we craving to jump back and forth? What is that dialogue that we're setting up? And trying to use all those editing toolboxes. Is this a hard cut here? Is this a very long, long, long dissolve so that we almost feel like the two time periods are ghosts over one another? Is it a music is all is just in terms of editing of the show was long i mean i think it's by far the longest post process i've ever had on a tv show and i just think it's because we had to really try and experiment through all of that like i think the number of cuts that we did um there were a lot of cuts
2: <laughs> yeah 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 well I, I know that's necessary and also you know just from a production standpoint and I know you've probably been asked this a lot, but I'm curious how it was shot in terms of, did, did you shoot all of the the 30s stuff first and then the 80s stuff or or how, how was the shot?
0: That would have been really nice if we could have done that. That would have been, it would have been a much more saner approach. So because we shot in two countries, we had to shoot Korea all out. And mm-hmm. then we moved over to Vancouver and shot all of Vancouver. And when I think about what Kay and Justin had to go through, pretty much they each shot an eight hour movie at the same time with two sets running often. So it would be, the actors would go from 1931 to 1935 from Osaka to Busan all in the same day. You know, they, we just, the production was such a challenge and such a puzzle that we really had to just schedule based on uh, what locations were available. How many hours of day we had for an outdoor scene, so it didn't really provide the most elegant or sane model.
2: You, you got to do what you got to do. Was there yeah. uh, it, was there anything in particular that you remember that uh, was was sort of a challenge that maybe you couldn't figure out for a while that you finally cracked, like a, a eureka moment, an aha moment when when you realize, oh, okay, we could do it this way.
0: I don't know if it's a eureka moment, but there's definitely so many moments when it felt. Me- bearable manageable you know when we first got to korea and i saw you know even in the canteen we had so many translators on this show like when i think talk think about i had a translate just to have a simple conversation like there's two, like, why are there two translators for this one conversation uh, and when this show first began shooting i was like we're never going to finish everything took twice as long right because everything had to be translated Every conversation with all actors, all the conversation with the directors. But then I think what was really inspiring sort of instead of the Eureka moment, it was the exhale moment. What I call is I remember when we were leaving Korea about to go to Vancouver in those final days, people were getting really emotional about it ending in Korea, you know, and there was such a shorthand in communicating. And these people who just started off the show not speaking the same language, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of quibbles at the end. They just did hand gestures. And it was, I thought that was just incredibly, incredibly powerful to see that. I think I teared up a little bit. Uh, we were cool. supposed to shoot in Japan. We didn't, we did only the plate shoes in Japan. We couldn't get in because of COVID. So that was probably the biggest puzzle of how do we do Japan?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where Vancouver came in.
0: We always knew we were going to do sets in Vancouver, but we were supposed to do Korea, Japan, and Vancouver. So all the stuff that we were supposed to shoot in Vancouver, then we had to split between Korea and J- Vancouver.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about COVID. Let's, let's add yeah. that on top of all the other challenges, you know, and in, in shooting this and, and make it, making it look natural. I, I know everyone's been struggling with this over the past two years, but uh, how, how did you find that sort of, you know, adjustment and, and shooting under these protocols, especially internationally?
0: You know, it's a huge testament to our production team in the sense that the priority was always to keep everyone safe. But can I tell you, you know, having all of us with COVID, it really made me more grateful to shoot, if that makes sense. I think if I hadn't, because because we we weren't even sure we were going to shoot. So by the time we got to Korea, it felt like, felt like this gift that we really just needed to honor because um, so many shows did shut down
2: and so it sounds like uh think things worked out okay no uh, no major we didn't you know we
0: were very fortunate we had no shutdowns um korea obviously they had their act it was very impressive just how the country handled covid uh, with the contact tracing and then when we got to vancouver yeah it, we were a bubble so we really did protect ourselves
1: that's cool.
2: That's good to hear. Hopefully as you, what's, what's the plan now to get back into production? What's the,
0: uh. Yeah. Um, there was no break. I had to jump into the season two writer's room and it's always been conceived as four seasons. So season two, which then follow the second generation, we will shoot sometime early next year. And yeah. So it, yeah.
2: T- TBD on actual, the cameras start rolling again sometime. Them. so sometime yeah. next year hopefully things will be a little more under control covid wise then and uh is is the hope to maybe then shoot in japan or what's yeah.
0: i i think japan is a crucial crucial part of this production so we really would i'm very eager to get in there yeah and uh, nervous you know nervous because you know we're going in with the best intentions
2: so wanted to ask you about japan real quick because I've heard that the show isn't as as well-known in Japan, that that perhaps it hasn't been promoted as much, or it's just, you know, there, there, there still are some some lingering, you know, obviously, uh, I don't know, political issues. I don't know how to yeah. describe it, but but clearly a show that probably hasn't been talked about or seen or, or heard about as much in Japan. And what what are your thoughts on that and, and concerns or, or maybe disappointments that... Not as many people have heard or seen about the show there.
0: And that's what's great about being on a streamer is we're there forever. Right. And what's interesting about Japan, Japan really was the great unknown. Were they going to watch the show? Were they going to boycott the show? Were they going to, there were best case scenarios and worst case scenarios. And I think what the reality was ended up being somewhere in the middle, right? You know, Apple TV plus launched in Asia recently. And so I think Japan is definitely still catching up and to the platform. But I have to believe, you know, knowing the intentions that went behind what we did in season one and going forward, that i have to believe that a Japanese audience will find this show. And I have to believe that they will see that this show is not about casting heroes and villains. You know, it really isn't, it's, but at the same time, it's not going to blink it. It's not going to turn away from what really happened. And I hope that the integrity of the storytelling is the thing that convinces people that we're worth watching in Japan.
2: Yeah, yeah. And like you said, this is a long tale, and there'll be more and more seasons as well. So eventually, hopefully it'll resonate there as well. Uh, real quick, your cast. I mean, it's an amazing cast, you know, uh, with some familiar faces to American audiences and, and some New faces for us, who I know are yeah. superstars elsewhere. But, um, you know, what was that casting process like for you?
0: It was so long. It felt so, so long. First of all, I, re- I realized, why did I write so many characters to cast? Because I <laughs> have to cast like 600 and some actors, right? And then because of all the multiple languages it was such an interesting process. Like I don't even know Japanese and how do you evaluate a performance? And the most reassuring thing was knowing that emotions do transcend language. As cheesy as it sounds, it was like, oh, totally. I'm crying right now and I don't know a word you just said. So that was really reassuring. It was, it, because especially the Korean model of casting was so different from the US American model that I'm used to. There was some, there was a learning curve on both parts on my part, on Korea's part. But end of the day, I think I'm so glad we went through that process. I think the cast that we got and put together, it's the dream cast.
2: Not bad having uh, Ye Jung Yoon there too, especially yeah. after her Oscar win. I don't know what the timing was like. If you'd A week before or...
0: the before the Oscar.
2: Oh, so so you're watching the Oscars and you're like...
0: Yes, yeah.
2: <laughs> we're golden. I know. Too good to be true. She's right. so fantastic. So maybe maybe we'll keep getting her more awards. Uh, uh, also like Jimmy Simpson, like, did he learn Japanese? Like, uh, yeah. he-
0: <laughs> Jimmy did not know Japanese at all, but he did learn it. He was such a good, and I loved He'd be like, I feel like I'm getting too good at Japanese. Cause you know, Tom's <laughs> only been here two years. It was so, I was like, I, I love Jimmy.
2: The other thing that I just, I so love, I never fast forward over the opening credits. Yeah. And I know you hear about that a lot too. It's just such a
0: I love it. Yeah.
2: Joyful opening. I just love them dancing in the pachinko parlor. Just there, there's something so cool about how that it's cut and seeing all the characters just it's it's so fun. Where where did that come from? That 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 idea for that opener?
0: Well, I knew I write title sequences into the script. And obviously, at first when I was writing the title sequence, I almost Threw it out that version because it was like, oh gosh, that's very lame. The show is called Pachinko. To do a title sequence in a Pachinko parlor, like
2: two on the nose, (laughs) like like,
0: yeah, I was like, is this going to be amateur hour? And then I was like, wait a minute, these Pachinko parlors are pretty amazing. They're great. They just the metaphor of the Pachinko parlor, but also the visual imagery of the Pachinko parlor. So let's just go for it. You know, it was a different song that was written in the script, which a song that we couldn't end up affording at the end. And I'm so glad because I can't imagine a different song than what we have now.
2: Yeah. What was the song? The original song? It was
0: a it was a Rolling Stones song, Out of Time. And it has that same poppy feel, but the lyrics are darker, that song mm-hmm. Out of Time. And I'm glad that we went for more of the joyful version.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Rolling yeah. Stones, that's expensive.
0: Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently they're doing very well for themselves.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Even though it is Apple, right? I mean they've got, don't they have Apple music deals? Uh who knows? But yeah. But that that's still cool, and that that song works great, and it is sort of nice to see some of that joy also in uh, because there are some you know obviously really dramatic moments on the show, really yeah. joyful moments, and and to see that in the opening credits is sort of a nice balance too. So
0: I'm so glad, thank you. I'm so happy that people are responding to it.
2: Yeah, so now on to season two. But how's everything else going? No, you've got a lot of plates spinning. What's what's sort of keeping you busy right now?
0: Well, right now I have two rooms. I have the pachinko room and then I have the white darkness room, which is based on a David Graham book and New Yorker article that Tom Hiddleston was starring. We'll shoot that next year as well. And on surface, pachinko and the white darkness seem almost like polar opposite stories. People are like, is your brain, your brain must be sort of fritzing based on like, you go from one room to the next that are just different stories. It's like, no, I mean, they're both stories about two indomitable people, right? You have the singes of the world and you have the Henry Worsley of the world. The White Darkness is a true story about this man, Henry Worsley, who was a towering, amazing, amazing human being. When I think about that, I get paid to make stories of exceptional people, right? It's a privilege.
2: That's Sue Hugh, showrunner and executive producer of Pachinko, now streaming on Apple TV+. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tank A, Emily Longaretta, and Clayton Davis, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.